0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlich and this is Steve's PhD, episode 14, Becoming Your Own Research Subject. So, by now I imagine you've got the idea that my PhD is about Australian university students studying overseas. And those who've had the patience to listen to my various speculations about the nature of the experience might have given pause to wonder, well, damn it, Nerlick, if you're a PhD student who's so interested in knowing what it's like to study overseas, why don't you go and study overseas? And so, welcome to episode 14. An email had gone around the university. That is, the Australian National University calling for applications to join a forum of Chinese and Australian PhD students being held in China with the theme of Big Data. Now, I certainly work with data, that is, student data, but whether I do Big Data is a bit unclear, since what people mean by Big Data is also a bit unclear. So I just let it go. But then the email came around again. This time it was the Arts and Social Sciences College, sounding a bit desperate, since the rules of engagement were that each university had to send one PhD student from a STEM field, that is, Science, Technology, Engineering and Math, and another student from the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, fields which sensibly choose not to represent themselves with an acronym. Anyhow, since education theory is a social science, and since no one else seemed to be applying, I thought, what the heck, I've got data? And so I applied, and shortly thereafter, found myself packing my bags for China. I may have noted in an earlier episode that I am terribly excited about getting more than 500 responses to my National University survey run last year. But I didn't build my application for the China Forum on the basis of my survey data, awesome though it is. My research interests require that I keep an eye on UNESCO, that is the UN Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, which produces global data on how many students study in other countries. UNESCO is currently reporting that over 4.5 million students studied outside their home country in 2013. Now, as I know from my studies, and as most people in the business would know, this figure laughably underestimates the true story, which is probably more like 8 million students. UNESCO reports students who go to another country to study for a full degree, but actually a lot of students don't do that at all. More often they are studying towards a degree in their home country and just go overseas for one study semester or for an even shorter time perhaps to do some PhD field research or maybe just present at a conference or even a bi-national PhD forum on big data. China is a bit of a magnet for students who are just studying short-term stuff rather than studying full degrees. In 2014, over 60% of incoming students to China, which is there for a few weeks to pick up some Mandarin and to experience a foreign culture. If that sounds a bit frivolous, remember the other 30-40% are doing full degrees, and that is 30-40% of China's half a million incoming students. If you just look at the UNESCO data about people doing full degrees... China ranks about number 10 in a list of the world's most popular study destinations. But if you include all those students doing short-term stuff, China comes in as the number 3 world's most popular study destination. And that was essentially my pitch to get an all-expenses-paid economy class return trip to China. Again, I'm not sure the data I'm talking about was necessarily big data, but it was complex, needed thoughtful analysis, and you could make a bit of a story out of it. And, best of all, a lot of that story was about China. And so the whole 34 of us, two students from the eight Australian universities and two students from the nine Chinese universities converged upon Nanjing. Nanjing, if you don't know, is an old capital of China, holding that title relatively briefly from 1928 to 1949, but for much longer periods in antiquity, notably during the Ming Dynasty. In Mandarin, the name Nanjing means the southern, Nan, capital, while Beijing is the northern, Bay capital. Nanjing University played a big role in building East-West relationships during the early and mid-20th century through hosting a number of Western academics, one of the most notable being John Dewey, who I went on about in earlier episodes and who is cited in a number of my published articles, don't you know, because in the world of experiential education theory, John Dewey is the dude. To go off on a tangent for a moment, I went to New York City in 2014 and was asked to deliver a talk in a classroom of Columbia University, specifically at Columbia Teachers College. And as I arrived and I'm walking through the foyer, here's this bust of a guy with a luxurious moustache, and I'm thinking, hey, that's either Banjo Patterson, unlikely, or it's John freaking Dewey. And it turns out that John Dewey taught at Columbia Teachers College for 26 years before he retired in 1930. Well, it turns out that John Dewey was also a big deal in China. As well as being Mr. Experiential Education, he was well known as an advocate of democracy and of evidence-based epistemology In other words, science. So he did a sort of China lecture circuit from about 1938 to 1942 during a brief period where mainland China was the Republic of China before it became the People's Republic of China in 1949 while the remainder of the old republic retreated to Taiwan. But before all that happened, while Dewey was in China... He gave 200 public lectures over the course of two years, apparently attended by many thousands, and all translated into Mandarin by a guy called Hu Shi, a former student of Dewey's who had studied at Columbia Teachers College. In his China lectures, Dewey talked about the value of democracy and of science and of education pushing across the idea that if China really wanted to revolutionise itself, it could do so through public education, rather than the usual approach of people running about in mobs firing off guns. Sadly, there was still a bit of running about, and of guns, but today no one would argue that China has grabbed second place in a list of the world's largest economies largely because its government has made higher education more accessible to the population and has also put a big emphasis on science, technology, engineering and math. Anyway, I'm not suggesting that I arrived in China following in the footsteps of greatness. I arrived as one of the close to half a million foreign students who come to study in China each year. Our little group of 16 Australian PhD students worked alongside the 18 Chinese PhD students to fill four days of back-to-back 15-minute thesis presentations. There were some clear thematic trends, with most of the Chinese students focused on nuts-and-bolts problems, data cleaning, data sorting and data processing, while the Australians tended to look at what their data could be used for. Healthcare, agriculture, and counting students, for example. While it might be tempting to appeal to cultural stereotypes, more likely this was a reflection of different faculties and universities being represented. The mostly STEM-based Chinese contingent had naturally assumed a forum about big data would be a technical forum about data processing, while the multidisciplinary Australians decided that it was all about data analysis and interpretation. As it happened, both approaches were similarly deep and technically complex in their own ways. So what the heck? And did we interact and develop intercultural competence Well, not much, with only four days to get to know each other. Certainly the Chinese students demonstrated very high-level intercultural skills since all of us presented our 15-minute segments in English. When the forum switches to Australia next year, everyone will also do their presentations in English. This is really just an acknowledgement that the majority of Australian-born students are hopelessly monolingual. Sure, we can liaise and collaborate and synergise like anyone else, as long as you don't mind doing it in our language. By and large, Australians and other native English speakers around the world have gotten away with this, since many international students include learning English as a routine part of their university education. English is supposedly the international language of science and the international lingua franca, that is, the language of business. If, in the future, Mandarin becomes the lingua franca or the lingua scientia, Australians might have to put some more effort into learning another language. But, who knows? In the coming decades we might all have Babelfish stuck in our ears. Or some more mundane technological solution, not only made in China, but also invented in China. Oh, and remember my thesis by publication? That will need six separate papers? To recap, I published two, submitted two, and have two left to write, one of which will of course be on my totally awesome survey results. And the other, hey, you know, I think it might just be on China. Steve Nellick, PhD candidate.